Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. It's the story of a University of Miami football player who was gunned down and killed in the parking lot of his apartment complex. And after 15 years of basically no public suspects or official suspects, police finally announced that they made an arrest for this crime just this year on August 19th, 2021. This episode is simply titled, Who Shot Brian Pata? So without further ado, let's get started. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Brian Pata. It's the story of a kid who struggled all his life to simply better himself and provide for his family. Then, when his dream of going to the NFL was literally in arm's length of coming true, thanks to hard work, perseverance, and dedication, it was senselessly stripped from him in a matter of seconds. So, let's start at the beginning. As an adult, Brian stood at 6 feet 4 inches and weighed 280 pounds. But before he became a defensive tackle for the University of Miami in 2003, ESPN.com reported that he was just a kid who grew up in Little Haiti. Little Haiti is a neighborhood in Miami, Florida, that is heavily populated with Haitian immigrants. And according to an article by Rob Goyanis for the New Tropic website, the Haitian American community in Miami-Dade County is the largest in the United States. Brian was born on August 12, 1984, to his parents, Jeanette Pata and Junior Pierre. According to an article by Michelle Kaufman for the Miami Herald, Jeanette and Junior met in the Bahamas and had two children before coming to the U.S. in June of 1978. At that time, Jeanette was also pregnant with her third child, Ronette. Upon arriving in the U.S., the couple went on to have several more children together, a total of nine, with Brian being the youngest. Brian and his family grew up in poverty, according to ESPN.com, and Kaufman reported for the Miami Herald that Jeanette would often work double shifts as a hotel maid to provide for her family, while Junior worked as a butler and a yard man, though it didn't clarify if he worked in a lumber yard or if he possibly worked for a lawn care business. But when Brian was just eight years old, his father left the family in 1992, leaving Jeanette as a single mother to take care of their nine kids alone. One of Brian's brothers, Edwin Pata, told the Miami Herald, quote, We always had a hard time financially, but it got 10 times worse when my dad left. My mom had to start working really long hours, so the other kids were left to take care of the younger kids. 
Ronette did all the cooking and making sure we did our schoolwork, and Costner played sports with the younger boys, end quote. Costner is one of Brian's older siblings as well. And according to the Miami Herald, the family moved around a lot to different apartments in the neighborhood. And those apartments were usually only two bedrooms with the six boys sharing one room and the three girls sharing the other room with their mom, Jeanette. Y'all, that means that there were 10 people living in a two-bedroom apartment. So I can only imagine the dynamic and close bond the family must have shared. While growing up, the kids also attended five different elementary schools, three middle schools, and three high schools. To put Brian's early life into a little more perspective, I want to read to you the introduction of an essay he wrote in a creative writing course at the University of Miami. In a paper dated January 25th, 2004, he wrote, quote, Life has always been a challenge, an obstacle of tests of who I am and what I will become. My name is Brian Pata, and this is my story, a story of love, perseverance, remorse, and hope. To begin with, my family is from Haiti and moved to the States with my older brother. Fortunately, I was born in the States, so it was easier for my parents to get me enrolled into the Dade County school system faster. Not knowing the English language was hard for my parents to find immediate work, and trying to communicate to others was difficult at times. Being in a country of freedom and opportunity was the greatest reward for the price of sacrifice my family and I made, end quote. As a former journalism professor, I must say that Pata's writing kind of blows me away in a totally good way, of course. Because Brian's father was absent for most of his life, he naturally was very close to his mother, and he dedicated his life to taking care of her and his family. According to the Miami Herald article, Brian's MySpace page back in the early 2000s was adorned with not only pictures of his car and friends, but he also had a picture with his mother. The caption under the photo read, quote, my beautiful mother that I love with all my heart, end quote. His mother recalled that before he was killed, he told her, quote, mom, I have a dream for you. I'm going to make you happy someday, end quote. So now that we know a little more about Brian's upbringing and his family dynamic, let's focus on another point in Brian's life. Upon graduating high school, ESPN.com reported that Brian was a four-star recruit, and although he likely had several colleges to choose from to play football, he was set on attending the University of Miami because he wanted to stay close to his family, especially his mother. So, Brian joined the Miami Hurricanes team in 2003 as a freshman and made an impression from the start. According to the University of Miami player biographies, during his first college game against Louisiana Tech, Brian registered two tackles and a sack. Then, by 2004, Brian snagged the starting role of left defensive end and held that position for the remainder of his college career. By the time 2006 rolled around and Brian was in his senior year, he had racked up 73 tackles, 15.5 tackles for loss, 9 sacks, 26 quarterback pressures, 2 fumble recoveries, and 1 pass defense. Now, (laughs) I'm not 100% sure what all that means exactly because, I mean, it's football, but I do know those are some damn good stats. So naturally, he was a shoe-in for the NFL. ESPN.com reported that he was projected to be a second or third round pick. And y'all, guess what he wanted to do of 
all the things that he could have done once he was selected, he wanted to buy his mom a house, which is just backing up what he said of wanting to make his mom happy. However, Brian wasn't a typical college student to say the least. For starters, he drove a black 2005 Infiniti QX56 SUV, equipped with custom spinners. But honestly, this really wasn't a surprise to those who knew him because, well, cars were his thing. Well, other than football, of course. But in his spare time, he had a side business. Actually, more of a hobby, but he had a side business with one of his older brothers, Fednal Pierre, of restoring and selling tricked-out cars. And when he graduated from college, when that day came, he had another dream of opening up his own car shop. In a video posted by ESPN.com, Brian showed off one of the cars he restored. Though I have no idea what type of car it was, it was definitely souped up and tricked out. It was a bright orangish red color with flamed seats and a flame steering wheel, and it came equipped with a digital dashboard. I mean... I'm kind of a square, but even I think that car looked pretty dang cool. Actually, because of his out-of-the-ordinary college lifestyle, Brian did an interview with a Miami Herald reporter, Manny Navarro. At the time, the reporter was working on a video project about Miami Hurricanes players. ESPN described it as a sort of nod to MTV Cribs, but featuring football players on the team. Navarro, the reporter, told ESPN that when he interviewed Brian, he seemed happy, in a good place. Navarro said of Brian, quote, I just remember the feeling of this kid is so happy with his life. Like, this is good. Life is good. I got a girlfriend. I got a dog. It was sort of this feeling of things are going to get better, end quote. However, others who were close to Brian, particularly his family, didn't seem to think the same. Apparently, Brian had been worried that something bad was going to happen to him or someone or something was going to stop him from accomplishing his dreams. He told his family that he would have such terrible nightmares that he'd sometimes hide in the closet, tucked away with his guns that he stored in there, and he'd sleep in his closet instead of his bed. One of Brian's brothers, Edric, told ESPN, quote, I remember him saying, man, they keep chasing me. These people, somebody keep chasing me in my damn dream. He hated death, end quote. Apparently, though, Edric also had a dream that he'd seen Brian lying in a casket. When he relayed this dream to Brian, Brian simply told Edric to pray for him. So Edric, of course, said he would do just that. But he reassured Brian and told him, quote, nothing is going to happen to you, end quote. However, as we all know, something did happen to Brian and his worst nightmares unfortunately came true. So let's fast forward to the day Brian was shot and killed. On November 7th, 2006, Brian had a pretty typical day, which started with an early meeting and workout that morning. Then, Brian and one of his teammates, Eric Moncur, registered for spring 2007 classes together and grabbed some lunch. Moncur said he recalled that Brian's girlfriend, Jada Brody, also joined them for lunch. Later that day, the football team practiced in the afternoon, and players remember Brian singing in the shower before he left the athletic center. Just before he did leave, though, Chris Zellner, one of Brian's teammates, 
overheard Brian on the phone in a heated conversation. Zellner told ESPN that he had never seen Brian that pissed off before unless it was on the football field. Zellner said, quote, I wasn't really trying to eavesdrop. I just remember him talking about, like, if you want, man, come see me then, end quote. Apparently, Zellner had told police about the phone call he heard, but it was not in the initial police report, and police would never really make known who exactly Brian was on the phone with. They basically said it was a dead end without actually saying it was a dead end. As Brian was leaving practice that evening, he noticed another one of his teammates, Josh Holmes, and several other underclassmen were waiting at a bus stop on campus. So Brian stopped and offered them a ride to their dorms. Holmes told ESPN that they laughed and talked about practice, and as they were getting out of Brian's SUV, the teammates bumped fists and Brian drove off. Those teammates were the last people to see Brian alive, but they weren't the last people to talk to Brian. That was actually his older brother, Fednall. According to ESPN, Brian's apartment complex was only about four miles from campus. By this time, it was dark and late into the evening. On his way home, Brian talked to Fednall on the phone. They discussed their business and new paint colors for a car they were fixing up. At about 7 p.m., Brian pulled into the parking lot of the Colony Apartments, where he lived with his girlfriend, Jada, and his close friend and teammate, Dwayne Hendricks. He pulled into his assigned space near a dumpster and some shrubbery and parked his SUV. Fednall said he could hear wind blowing while his brother was speaking. Then, suddenly, the call just dropped. It was around this time that Jada thought she heard an argument downstairs. When she left the apartment and went outside to check it out, she discovered Brian, alone, with nobody else in sight. He was unresponsive and lying on his back, bleeding onto the walkway near his car. Brian had been shot, execution style, with at least one bullet that pierced his skull about three inches above and a half inch in front of his left ear. Jada sprung into action and immediately went back upstairs to grab her phone and call 911. At the same time, Brian's roommate, Dwayne, arrived home to the complex and quickly noticed something was off. He said when he first saw Brian sprawled out on the ground, he thought it was just a prank or something, just Brian being silly. But he soon realized that it was not a prank or a joke at all. It was very real and Brian wasn't moving or responding and there was a puddle of blood all around him. Before he could even realize it, Dwayne took the phone from Jada, who was hysterical at this point and had returned back downstairs from their apartment. According to ESPN.com, the call suddenly dropped, but Dwayne called right back and emergency personnel were actually already on their way from Jada's initial 911 call. At some point during the commotion, a man working on his car nearby took notice of the situation and ran over to help. He began chest compressions until paramedics arrived just minutes later. Unfortunately, though, the efforts were unsuccessful and Brian was pronounced dead at 7.07 p.m. He was only 22 years old at the time of his death. It didn't take long for police to determine that whoever shot and killed Brian Pata was fast and precise. The person simply showed up, took a shot or two, and then hightailed it out of there. ESPN.com reported that police theorized the shooter had been hiding in the bushes or shrubbery or possibly even behind the dumpster, waiting for Brian to arrive. 
Police also estimated that about two minutes elapsed between when Brian parked and when he was shot. Police found Brian's cell phone and keys on the ground near his body, and his wallet, which contained nine $100 bills, was found in Brian's front left pocket, which means the shooting was not motivated by robbery or carjacking or anything else besides shooting and killing Brian Pata. According to ESPN, police have never found anyone who actually witnessed the shooting. And on their end, the Miami Herald reported that police have always been pretty tight-lipped about the crime entirely. They have never released exactly how many times the shooter fired at Brian, but we do know that at least one witness in the apartment complex told police they heard gunshots, plural, not a gunshot. And another witness told police that they heard arguing, just as Jada had heard as well. Police did tell ESPN that there was one resident of the apartment complex who was walking in the parking lot that night, and that resident said he saw a man running from the scene. And that resident gave them such a good description that police were able to come up with a composite sketch of that suspect. But if you think that sketch was ever released to the public, you'd be wrong, because no, they never released it. Also, ESPN reported that records indicate the police had an unidentified person look at a photo lineup of the suspects. But again, police never released results of that lineup or identified who that person was that they brought in to look at the photos. So the primary questions lingering, of course, were who shot and killed Brian and why did they do that? Well, honestly, police learned that there were several possibilities that could answer both of these burning questions. So let's talk about the potential suspects in a little more detail. According to ESPN, police chased more than a dozen different leads in their initial investigation, interviewed over a hundred people and produced a 200 plus page investigative report. But all of it basically amounted to more questions and no public leads, at least not any that police would announce for years. One person police were led to was a woman who had recently purchased a car from Brian. You know, one of the cars he and his brother had fixed up and tricked out. According to ESPN, police made a trip to see Tina Peterson in Issaquah, Washington. Apparently, Peterson was a 60-year-old gamer with the screen name of Moonwings with a Z. And she bought the car for a man in Arkansas whom she met on World of Warcraft because she considered herself to be the man's fairy godmother. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can't make this stuff up, y'all. The car was a two-toned, candy-teal-colored 96 Chevy Caprice with a Miami Dolphins-themed interior, and they sold it to her on eBay for a whopping total of $8,500. Which, I mean, might explain exactly why Brian had a wad of $100 bills in his pocket when he died. Anyway, when the car was shipped to Arkansas, it arrived with missing headlights and mirrors, and the car's transmission was all messed up as well. The car just wouldn't go in reverse. So the woman, I can only imagine, pissed as hell, emailed Fednall and tried calling Brian, but to no avail. They never responded to her. So police felt like this could have been a motive to shoot and kill Brian. However, after visiting Peterson and speaking with the man in Arkansas, police soon crossed these suspects off their lists. However, police 
never really said how or why specifically these people were cleared. According to ESPN, the man in Arkansas did say that although he felt bad about Brian Pata, he had no idea who killed him. And honestly, there were other much more plausible leads that police needed to focus on anyway. For example, they looked into a nightclub brawl Brian had engaged in that ended with a gang member threatening Brian, saying, quote, we're going to get you, end quote. Those leads fizzled out too, though, as others emerged such as Jada and her family. Yes, I'm talking about Brian's girlfriend, Jada Brody. When the two met at the University of Miami, Jada was a freshman. The two met through one of Brian's teammates, Dave Howell, and Brian was immediately smitten with Jada. He told his friend he was going to make Jada his girl, and he did just that. After dating for about seven months, Brian and Jada, along with Brian's teammate and friend, Dwayne Hendricks, and a Yorkshire terrier named Cheerio, (laughs) all moved into a multi-level apartment complex together. At some point, Jada even got Brian's middle name, Sydney, tattooed on her neck to profess her love for Brian. However, it sounds like their relationship had its fair share of ups and downs, and depending on who you asked, They were hot and cold and had one of those on-again, off-again types of relationships. One of Brian's coaches, Clint Hurt, described Brian's and Jada's relationship as a bit volatile at times as well, and some of their friends even told police that there was a history of domestic violence in their relationship. But when police asked Jada about this, she denied it. On the surface, they did seem happy, though, because ESPN reported that on November 6th, the night before Brian's death, He and Jada attempted to celebrate their anniversary at a sushi and steakhouse, but the restaurant was closed. So they settled for an evening at a bowling alley instead. And while they were there, they bumped into one of Brian's friends who later told police it was, quote, the happiest he had seen Brian, end quote. However, Coach Hurt said that a few days before Brian died, he was talking to Hurt and discussing his NFL draft plans. And he mentioned that he was considering breaking up with Jada. Coach Hurt, though, just told Brian, quote, I'll believe it when I see it, end quote. As we all know, police would not be doing their jobs correctly if they didn't look at Jada, the girlfriend, more closely. So they did background checks on not only Jada, but also several members of her family as well. And they discovered several of them had served prison time before. For starters, they checked out one of Jada's uncles, though no news reports provide a name of the uncle who had been released from prison in the summer of 2006. They also looked into Jada's father, Jerry Gaines, who had also been released from prison in August 2006, but he was rearrested on November 13, 2006 because of a parole violation. They also discovered that Brian and Gaines had a history of disagreements, to say the least. Gaines told police that he got word from their family back in February or March of 2006 that Jada and Brian had broken up and Brian was basically trash talking his daughter. So playing the protective father role, Gaines called Brian and just told him to, hey, stop talking all the shit. However, the person whom police focused most of their time on as far as Jada's family went was Jada's 19 year old twin brother, Jerome Brody. Apparently, he had a rather long rap sheet. His criminal history included guns and violence, and in October of 2006, Jerome was released on bail after he was arrested on drug-related charges in their hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. 
Then, in December 2006, Jerome was arrested again on charges of an illegal firearm. ESPN reported that two guns found in Jerome's rental car were connected to a homicide, but Jerome nor anyone else was ever officially charged in connection to the killing. However, it's critical to point out that the guns found in Jerome's car were not consistent with the gun used to kill Brian. Regardless, police did their due diligence and the lead detective on Brian's case traveled to Boston to interview Jerome. Though Jerome wasn't exactly welcoming of the visit, he denied having anything to do with Brian's death. Jerome told the detective, quote, I will listen to you guys, but I'm not saying shit. You are all wasting your time up here. You all from Miami and come 1800 miles to see me? Let me have your card. I will contact you through my family if I remember anything. You all are harassing my family, end quote. And then Jerome ended the interview. So let me tell you about one of the most critical leads police focused on in the immediate aftermath of Brian's death. That person was a teammate of Brian's and someone who had ties to Brian on numerous levels. That person is Rashawn Jones, and not only was Jones a member of the Miami Hurricanes football team as well, but he also dated Jada first before Brian did. And ESPN reported Jones would often remind Brian of this fact. So the two teammates, Brian and Rashawn Jones, had some clear beef between them. One time in the summer of 2006, Jones and fellow teammate Eric Monker got into an argument, and Brian and some of their other teammates were in a room nearby and heard the two arguing. Monker recalled that Brian came out of nowhere to defend him against Jones. Monker explained the situation, saying, quote, He started getting in Rashawn's face, and then their argument escalated and they started fighting, end quote. Then Moncur went on to say that Brian got on top of Jones and started headbutting him over and over at least five consecutive times. When Moncur jumped in to break up the fight, Jones threatened Brian, saying, quote, boy, you might as well go ahead and clip up, end quote. CBS Miami reported that about two months before Brian's death, Brian told his family that Jones had allegedly threatened to shoot him in the head. However, it's unclear if that is the same threat as the incident I just described to you or if it is a separate incident altogether. Because, according to ESPN, on a separate occasion, Jones was taunting Brian about Jada, which escalated to a fistfight in the locker room between the two. So, let's fast forward to the night of Brian's death, immediately following the shooting. That night, the team was called to an emergency meeting at the Height Center, where their locker room was located. While most players, incredibly concerned and heartbroken over what happened to Brian, showed up to that meeting, including Dwayne Hendricks, Brian's roommate, who showed up with his t-shirt stained with Brian's blood, there was one player in particular who was noticeably absent from the meeting. I'll give you one guess as to who that was. Yes, that's right. It was Rashawn Jones. ESPN.com reported that Jones had been suspended that day because he tested positive for marijuana. And apparently it was his third failed drug test. But he was still expected to participate in team events, including that emergency meeting. Jones, though, despite dozens of players reporting that they did not see him at the meeting, 
told police he was there, that he did go to the Hike Center that night. He said he was at home, that's a key piece of information, and that when the mass text went out for the team to come to the Hite Center for the meeting, he said he simply went to the meeting. After further investigation, police soon discovered that Jones was all over the place with his story, and basically, shit didn't add up. CBS Miami reported that police found several inconsistencies in his story, and there was a lot of shady stuff going on. For starters, Jones allegedly called another teammate that night to ask him to borrow money so he could go out of town. And Jones's girlfriend at the time, Jerry Abramson, said she tried to call Jones several times that night after she heard about Brian's death, but Jones never answered her calls. She later said Jones told her he shut off his phone for a while because he was upset about Brian's death and the fact that he had gotten suspended, explaining why he never answered her calls. But police discovered that later that night, Jones ended up showing up to Abramson's house and Abramson told one of the Miami Hurricanes coaches that Jones was, quote, out of it when he did show up. And listen to this. Police discovered that Jones had changed his phone number that very day for some reason. According to an article in the Miami Herald, upon further investigation, police discovered that even though Jones said he was at home the night of the shooting, you know, he said he was at home chilling before he went to the meeting at the Height Center, his cell phone records proved otherwise. Surprise, surprise. They showed he was actually near the murder scene the night of the shooting, not at his house where he said he was. So, That brings us to the present time, right now in 2021. You see, the timeline on police's discovery of all this information is very unclear and not specified in any reporting. That's because, regardless of all of this evidence against Rashawn Jones, police never arrested him. They never even announced that he was officially a suspect or anything of the sorts. Basically, he was really only a person of interest, or at least that's what the public could only believe until this year, 15 years after the killing of Brian Pata, was Rashawn Jones finally arrested on August 19th, 2021. I know, stuff is crazy, so let me fill you in on what I do know. You see, most of the information I have told you today came from one feature story about Brian Pata from ESPN.com, and it was written by two amazing writers, Paula Levine and Elizabeth Merrill. It was published just last year on November 6, 2020. But the reason this article is so important is because ESPN actually got into a lawsuit with the Miami-Dade Police Department. This was after the department approached ESPN back in 2017 and asked them to help cover the story and regenerate some interest in the case. Maybe help push their investigation forward, bring up some new leads and witnesses, you know, all that jazz. The police department told ESPN that they believed someone at the University of Miami, specifically someone tied to the football program, had key information related to Brian's shooting. Of course, ESPN said yes, like that they would do this story, but they wanted to do some research of their own, maybe talk to people who wouldn't talk before. I mean, after all, in 2017, it had been over 10 years since all of that happened. 
They thought maybe some of the players on the team were now parents themselves, had children of their own, so perhaps they could relate to Pata's mother now. Maybe help provide some answers to Jeanette and her family for closure. So ESPN hit the road running. They ultimately obtained over 5,000 documents, including photos, audio recordings, and videos, and they interviewed over 100 people, many of whom police had never even contacted or approached before. Basically, to really understand Brian's life and dig deeper, ESPN retraced his steps and interactions in the months leading up to his death, ultimately producing that super in-depth feature story as a result. ESPN also reported that over the three years of conducting their investigation for the story from 2017 to 2020, police sat for hours in front of microphones during at least six different interviews and said the whole time that they never had one suspect. Instead, they made it clear that there were many suspects, that everyone was a suspect. ESPN, not completely buying this and feeling like the Miami-Dade Police Department was not sharing all of the information with them, they filed a civil lawsuit in March 2020 against the department, alleging they were violating the Florida open records laws. During the lawsuit, police answers began to change. ESPN reported that in July and August of 2020, Lieutenant Joseph Zancanato stood in front of a judge and said, quote, we have a strong belief who killed Brian Pata, end quote. And he added that he thought the department would soon make an arrest. He said they were just a puzzle piece away from arresting their primary person of interest, a person whom they came very close to arresting at least 10 years ago. Regardless, though, he explained that they had redacted a lot of the information given to ESPN because it contained key pieces of evidence that they needed to keep confidential, key pieces of information about their only official suspect, but again, not a suspect they were making public just yet. Ultimately, in September of 2020, the judge presiding over the civil lawsuit between ESPN and the Miami-Dade Police Department sided with police and found them not in violation of the open records laws. So, fast forward all the way to August 19th, 2021 of this year, and police kept their word that an arrest would happen soon. That's when they arrested Rashawn Trayvon Jones, who was now 35, in Marion County, Florida, on a first-degree murder warrant. The Associated Press reported that although he was originally arrested on first-degree murder, he was officially charged with second-degree murder because to actually indict him on murder in the first degree, they would have to take the case to the grand jury. They said they still may proceed with first-degree murder, but that decision will come later. Regardless, according to an article in the Miami Herald by David Orvale, Jones appeared in Miami-Dade Circuit Court on August 27, 2021, and pleaded not guilty, but the judge ordered him to be held without bond. Also, according to the article by Orvale for the Miami Herald, police finally named the eyewitness who described the suspect running out of the parking lot. Remember how I mentioned earlier in the episode that there was a witness whom police were able to get enough information from to generate a sketch? Well, that witness was finally identified this year as Paul Connor, who is now 77 years old. 
At the time, then, he would have been younger, around 62 years old. But I mention his age because now prosecutors are asking the judge to preserve his testimony, as in record it so it can later be played or read to a jury. The Miami Herald reported that this is in light of the pandemic and their key witness being, quote, vulnerable to severe risks if he contracts COVID-19, end quote. Oh, and ESPN reported this year that Paul Connor is the person who police brought in to identify the suspect in that photo lineup. Guess what? Back in 2007, Connor picked out Rashawn as the man he saw running out of the parking lot, and then he identified him again in another photo lineup in 2020. So all those years later, and Connor was still showing police the same man. So I ask, what the hell was taking police so long to make their arrest? Well, the only answer I can give to you is what police homicide detective Juan Segovia said in a social media post after announcing Jones's arrest. CBS Miami reported that Segovia said, quote, One of the challenges of investigating a case like this with a victim like Brian Pata is that Brian Pata's whole world revolved around football and his family. So it's not like he had a lot of enemies. He wasn't involved in any criminal elements. He was a young man who was looking forward to a future in the NFL. That's all he wanted to do, play football in the National Football League. He wanted to take care of his family one day. He wanted to take care of his mom, sisters, and his brothers, and that's all he ever talked about. And that's all he ever aspired to do in life, end quote. But Segovia went on to say that lengthy investigations like this one are quite unique because there is no statute of limitation for homicide. He said, quote, the community never stopped contacting us. And even if we get a thousand tips, but only one of them was the one that actually put the pieces together. That's what it took. And that's exactly what happened in this case. End quote. Jones's defense attorney, Michael Mirror, however, vehemently denies Jones's involvement and criticized police's circumstantial evidence that they sat on for 15 years. Mirror told ESPN, quote, I mean, the arrest warrant talks about evidence that police gathered back in 2007, sat on for 15 years, and re-interviewing the same eyewitness that they allegedly interviewed back in 2007 without any further evidence in the arrest warrant, end quote. I will say, though, as just a person who researched this case a lot, <laughs> that the arrest warrant actually did present a piece of evidence that I, I personally, in my own research, had not seen in any other reports or news stories previously. That was the fact that, apparently, the bullet found in Brian Pata matched the caliber of gun that Jones owned. So I'll leave you with that piece of information, and we will have to wait until the next movement in this case for anything new, but we won't have to wait long. The Miami Herald reported that lawyers will return to the court later this month on October 27th, so I will be sure to post some updates for y'all on my social media after we learn what happens beyond that date. For now, I want to end the episode like I always do, in remembrance of the victim of this crime, Brian Pata. You know how I said Brian was ready for the NFL? Well, just prior to his death, he had picked out a nice, well-tailored beige suit to wear for his draft party. 
He saw it on the rack at the store and just had to have it. He was so proud of that suit. Sadly, though, he never got to wear it while he was alive, but it was the suit in which he was laid to rest. And I just wanted to share that little piece of information with you guys since I didn't mention it earlier. Brian's family recently told NBC Miami that although there has been an arrest, justice won't be complete until Brian's killer is found guilty. So, for now, I'll leave you with some parting words from Brian's mother, Jeanette, who said, quote, Every night, every day, I'm missing my son. I miss him. End quote. Okay, y'all, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 16, but what do you guys think of this story? What do y'all think about police finally arresting Rashawn Jones after 15 freaking years? I'd love to know your thoughts on this case, so be sure to check out all my social meds. That's social media, (laughs) I mean. I've been working around college students for way too long, and so now I feel like I'm talking like them. But check out my social media at Campus Crime Pod on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. I'll also be sure to post the updates to this case as it plays out in real time. So be sure to check out my Instagram and Facebook later this month. Also, before I officially close out this episode, I just want to say that I am so close to hitting my new goal of 50 or more reviews on Apple Podcasts by the end of 2021. I'm currently at about 39 or 40 as of the recording of this episode, so that means only a few more to go. (laughs) So help me make this happen, y'all. Okay, bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.